This week on Writers Inc. I don't do well later because I'm tired. So if I wake up and do my writing, my brain is fresh and you also tend not to self-edit as much because the editor's still asleep. Right, the creative part has had a good night's rest and maybe still has some dreams in there, who knows? And that's where I get a lot of my ideas. So it's a good time for me. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. Happy birthday, J.D. Barker. Oh, man, you too. <laughs> yeah, so for for those who aren't in the know, I turned 50 today uh, at exactly 147 in the morning, uh, to, to be precise. But according to Wikipedia, I'm still 49, so I'm going to go with that for, for now anyway until they, they, they wise it up. But, um, yeah, I just I just got off the phone with my one of my best buddies from high school, and, and you know, it just it seems so weird. You know, like we're, it feels like high school was a week ago. And, you know, now it's like I'm looking at, you know, like I'm getting all retrospective and I'm, I'm thinking, well, now I've got less years in front of me than I do behind <laughs> me. And like all these thoughts start popping in your head. And ah, yeah. So are you there yet? Are you 50? Uh, I, I'm, you're a few <laughs> months ahead of me, uh, but okay. I'm, I'm definitely I think it was accelerated by the pandemic. But I am yeah. definitely in a situation now where I'm. <laughs> I'm not seeing myself as that young, spry, uh, thirty-year-old that I that I used to be, and, and I'm having those same thoughts. Like, wow, yeah, I don't, I have you know fewer years ahead than I do behind, and uh, it's kind of sobering. It, it is, but I mean, there's there's a lot of good points too. I mean, I, I'm honestly in the best shape I think I've ever been physically. Me too. Um, you know, like way better than I was in high school. Yep, which is, yeah, that that's crazy to, to think about. You know, like financially, like my life and all that kind of stuff. Like I, I I'm in a really good place, and you know, like I, I remember what it was like to graduate high school and sort of panic, like holy crap, now I'm up there on my own because my parents literally did sort of kick me out the door at, at 18. Like I had the moving truck. Like my mom was going through a nasty divorce, and you know, like oh, I just wow. didn't want to be there. Like I I got the moving truck packed and I, I left like as soon as I could and and I was on my own and you know but that that was a very scary time I mean thinking back on it and like now I kind of know how all that played out and it you know I'm in a pretty good place so that that's all good um and my daughter sent me a little video you know from literally the, the other the next room but if, <laughs> if, you know she's three singing happy birthday and like you know that kind of thing makes it all worthwhile yeah yeah we, we were talking off air I said that uh my uh, oldest child turned 18 yesterday, and uh, we sang happy birthday to him, and I kind of nudged him in the arm and said, okay, get the hell out of my house. <laughs> <laughs> Either that or start paying rent. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Earn your keep, boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny. There, there, there aren't many milestone birthdays uh, that are sort of universal, but I, I feel like 18, 21, and, and now 50 is, is definitely, definitely one. I think people who've turned 50 can probably understand what that feels like. 
Well, there's the big one at 25 when you get the break on your car insurance. That one's Oh, next. right. Yes. How can I forget that one? <laughs> yeah, 20, 21, being able to legally drink after I probably had already been drinking for five or six years. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the, the novelty had worn off by the time I was allowed to do it. I do remember when I turned 21, I went into the, the liquor store and I bought like my first case of beer, you know, like legally bought it and the guy didn't card me. <laughs> oh, that's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After years of, you know, fake IDs and you know, bribing people to go into the store for me and all that other fun stuff that you do when you're a kid, you know, like when you're finally able to do it, like they didn't even card me. Like, oh, it's so disappointing now. Like, is it because like that just doesn't even matter anymore? You know, it's yeah. such a big thing. It's such a big deal when you're younger. But like, yeah. Well, I'm fishing for a lot of this stuff because the book I'm writing right now, all the all the characters are teenagers. They're all in their junior oh. and senior year of high school. So I'm like trying to wrap my head back around that that mindset because, you know, for a lot of authors, you know, our characters age with us. Yes. You know, like it, when we're younger, we're writing younger generation. I'm 50. Like all my characters seem to be middle age. Um, so to have to go back to that and, you know, that that's, that's actually pretty tricky. And, and also to, you know, like invoke, you know, like current lingo, you know, just getting, you know, things that are, you know, current as far as, you know, what people, kids are saying. And, and I'm calling them kids, like, you know, which is weird. Um, but, you know, it's just it's, it's one of those things like you, you got to throw in just enough, I think, to, to pull it off. But at the same time, I'm also trying to re remember that, like, my core audience is female 45 and over, um, you know, so I don't want to go too far because then, you know, it's a young adult book and they're not going to care. So so all that stuff's tricky, too. But it, it's one of the reasons why I've been going down memory lane. But, you know, the birthday does, just doesn't help. <laughs> no, no. Well, if you uh, if you need any insight or consultations, with uh, an 18-year-old male, uh, he is—he's <laughs> doing the post-production on these episodes. So you just let me know, and I'll—I'll uh, I'll connect you. <laughs> I, I may have to pick his brain. Yeah, yeah. So what else is going on? Have you turned on the news? Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're, we record this uh, on a Thursday. It comes out on a Monday, and um, so we just have no idea what's going on. There, there's so much chaos right now. We, you know, we talked about how we wanted to talk about this. And it's just hard because there's, there's a lot of misinformation. There's, there's still a lot of things that are happening and uh, we're just kind of in a wait and see mode and, and hopefully um, law and order prevails and things get back to the way they should. But right now it's just nuts. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I turned on the TV last night long enough to, you know, it, realize that I was watching real live TV and not a Jerry Bruckheimer movie. And um, then flipped it over to cartoons and just watched something fun with my daughter. Like I just, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's gotten to be too much. Like I, I think just like everybody else, I think I, I want it all to be done. Um, and I, yeah. I get that everybody's frustrated and I understand the reasons that everybody's frustrated and it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. I, I think at, at this point, we all got to just kind of acknowledge where we're at and, and come together and, and, and get past it and just and move on somehow as, as hard as that's going to be for, for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I was sitting on the couch next to my two teenage kids, and it was quite an interesting conversation we were having. You know, because they're, you know, they're they're old enough now that uh, these are going to be things that they're are, are going to be not only memorable but are going to shape their perspective and ideas on the world as they become adults. And uh, it's just a unique opportunity in history to kind of have those conversations. Well, it's another one of those things where age is, you know, it, you see things a little bit differently as, as you get older. And while we're talking off the air, you know, like I've, I've seen, you know, we haven't seen this before, um, but we've seen things like this before. 
Um, you know, so it, I don't think it's quite as impactful on somebody that's a little bit older as it is somebody that's, you know, younger, like your son's age, seeing this kind of thing for the first time. Um, you know, I, I worked in finance and like the first time that I saw the stock market crash, I completely freaked out. I thought it was the end of the world. And like, right. now I've seen that same thing happen, you know, I think three times now. And, and instead of freaking out, like I see it as a buying opportunity and I'm buying stocks when, the, when you know, the market's tanking. Um, all, all this kind of stuff is, is cyclical and we do eventually come out of it and, you know, hopefully for the, for the better on the other side, but, um, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So a few other things here, uh, want to give a nice shout out to our sponsor, Kobo Writing Life. They empower you, the author, to take your publishing career into your own hands. You get to keep, uh, set your price, keep all your rights, and they have monthly promotional opportunities. So make sure you head on over to KoboWritingLife.com if you want to get in on the action. Also want to give a warm welcome and shout out to the newest patron to the Writers Inc. podcast. That is Jessica Renwick. So thanks a lot, Jessica, and uh, welcome. There was one thing I wanted to bring up, and I don't have a whole lot of detail on this, but um, Thursday is my day to, to take a look at my advertising campaign. So I run through my Facebook ads and figure out what's performing and adjust budgets, and I do the same thing with, with Amazon. And I, I just loaded it up right before we got on the air, and I noticed that my A cost is gone. Have you heard oh. anything about this? Like that, that column is, is literally not there anymore. It's, that, it's been that's got to sound like a, a an update issue or something. I would no, think. it looks like they replaced it. Um, oh. Now I've got something that I've never had before before called ROAS, return on ad spend. Um, the little oh. information button, if you hover over it, it says the revenue you receive from your advertisement investment. This is calculated by dividing sales attributed to your ads by the spend. Attrib uh, attribution varies by campaign type. Um, so aside from that little blip of a description, I, I don't know anything about this. I'm not quite sure how to use it when calculating my ads, but I'm just throwing it out there because I, I don't know if this is, you know, something that they're rolling out to everybody all at once, or if it's going to be a systematic rollout over the next couple of weeks, but I've got a feeling I'm not the first author to see it. So we're going to have to, to figure out how to adjust our ad campaigns based on this. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the internets will be uh, buzzing with that very soon if they aren't already, because <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that's something that tends to freak authors out when they see changes like that. Yeah, I mean, because ACOS, you know, as, as unreliable as it was, it was the fact that it was there was reliable. <laughs> something, know? yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was something, something to gauge by. So now we've got, um, you know, they've converted our speedometer, you know, from miles per hour to kilometers, and we need to figure out how that works. Yeah. All, uh, related to that, I wanted to give a shout out to Joanna. She... Uh, mentioned our end of the year episode in her most recent episode of the creative pen and uh and had a few comments back and forth with her about the end of uh pay-per-click advertising <laughs> and i think i think it's worth clarifying that uh we weren't necessarily saying it was going to disappear but that um the the nature of how it operates especially for indies is going to become much more challenging in in 2021 oh i, I heard her episode i'm pretty sure she called you out you said that it was the end of pay-per-click advertising I, I wouldn't be surprised if you have that on a t-shirt and a hat at this point yeah hold me to that like uh <laughs> was it george bush senior no new taxes right no that, that'll, taxes. that'll be that i'll go down with that one <laughs> yeah, I, I think just like anything else, we just have to keep um, looking at, at, at what's next. You know, I'm, I'm looking at television. I'm looking at a lot of other venues. Um, I, I plan to expand beyond Facebook and, and Amazon for sure over the next year. Um, you know, so depending on what happens with, with, the, with that model, um, I hope to be in, in another you know venue at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All Let's right. See. Who do we have on today? We have HM Gooden is joining us today. HM. Okay. So a fairly new author, right? Yes, she is. Uh, she's writing mostly urban fantasy, 
and she's she's got a family and a day job. So this is a uh, this is an author who's trying to balance all of the all the demands of being independently published, uh, being a sort of a one person team, and and trying to make it happen. So I think this is a a great perspective for for a lot of our listeners who might be in a very similar situation and uh, and kind of seeing you know what what does that trajectory look like and and what do you have to do to get there. Nice. Okay. Well, here she is, H.M. Gooden. I would love to hear about this recurring dream of yours. Uh, the one from Dream of Darkness, I'm assuming? Yeah, yeah, the one that goes all the way back to your childhood. Right. Well, I have a couple of recurring dreams. And I would say that a few have made it into my books. But the probably the one that started it all is the one that I used to have in high school. And I grew up in a very small town, less than 800 people small. And in this dream... The hospital that we had in town, which I spent a lot of time at in the middle of the night because I also figure skated and hurt myself on an almost weekly basis. Uh, in my dreams, it was the same hospital, but it was like a post-apocalyptic version of that hospital. Wow. So, you know, like there was cracks down the walls and there was like tumbleweeds in the hallway and and so this was a reoccurring dream I had and it was one of those dreams that I would have whenever I was stressed so exams you know teenage drama the usual kind of stuff and it um somehow it, it made its way into this book where my main character ends up in a terrible car accident and she is admitted to hospital in coma and that's the hospital in my book, because that is sort of this altered reality world where she wakes up in and, and then discovers that her world is nothing like what she thought. Was this a, a kind of dream that you dreaded or you look forward to? Were you sort of ambivalent about it? What was your, when it was like, maybe early on, especially, what was that like? So I've always been a very lucid dreamer and um, I, I wouldn't say I ever looked forward to those dreams, but from a, probably my early teens, maybe even going back further, I would get these recurring dreams and it was like, I would wake up in my dream going, Oh, it's this dream again. So I discovered again, in my teens, that I could control what happened in my dream, which I apparently most people say that's not a thing, but <laughs> I, I mean, I would even have subtitles in some of my dreams. Wow. <laughs> so whenever I would get these recurring dreams, I, it would almost be like, oh, this is the bad part. And then I could fast forward. Wow. So I don't know if I looked forward to them or just was like, oh, whatever, it's this thing again. And then when I woke up, I'd be like, okay, I'm having that dream again. So clearly something has to change. Wow. Are you a lucid dreamer in all dreams or just the, these recurring ones? Uh, when I remember having dreams, yeah, I would say probably mostly. I do find that when I'm extremely stressed, I won't remember my dreams like I think most people. And I think there's evidence behind that too is we all have dreams, but when we're under a lot more stress or anxiety or depression, those are the people that really don't recall their dreams. So when I go through periods where I don't have dreams, I'm like, uh Oh, something's really bad. Cause I'm not even having nightmares now. Yeah. 
So. I, I've tried training myself to be a lucid dreamer a, a few times, and I, I just can't seem to, to, to get it to work. Do you think it's the kind of thing that you're just – either you have the capability to do it or you don't? Well, I, I think that's probably true because I, I don't know how well we can control things that we don't understand. But I kind of do wonder if there is a brain chemistry – part that plays in. I mean, if you look at people uh, right from childhood on, there's people that are really good sleepers, like deep sleepers. There's people that are restless sleepers. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of people out there. But in general, whatever you were as a kid tends to continue through life. That's fascinating. And, you know, so I don't know if it's an ADHD thing. Maybe people that have a lot more, you know, things going on in their head. Maybe they can do it better, or maybe it's the people that have deeper sleeps or lighter sleeps. Yeah. Well, I've it, always been a good sleeper. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it seems like for you, uh, that scenario, whether it's in your dream world or not, is lends itself very well to urban fantasy. Oh, uh, absolutely. And so I, I wonder, um, because this is a, a relatively new sort of commercial genre, new being in the past you know, five or 10 years, yeah. Um, how do you define urban fantasy? What, what what makes something urban fantasy in your opinion? I am not great at defining it because <laughs> I actually thought I was writing fantasy and then someone told me it was paranormal and then I'm like, oh, it fits in urban fantasy. So I, I would say for me, an urban fantasy is one where obviously there's fantastical elements that we don't see in our day-to-day -day world you can argue about whether, you know, ghosts exist or not, but in most urban fantasies, there's an aspect that is sort of on that paranormal fringe for real life that's just accepted as happening, like it's real in the urban fantasy genre, whether that's vampires or magic or ghosts or things that we talk about in real life, but most people don't accept as reality. Yeah. Why do you think that's so appealing right now? Well, I think we, I mean, personally, I love reading because it is my chance to escape, right? I want something different than what I'm living through. Otherwise, I would just, you know, wake up and go to work. So I'm also the kind of person that I very rarely see Oscar nominee movies or things that are supposed to be like really good in a dramatic sense because my life has enough drama. I want magic. I want happy endings. I want things that make me laugh, you know, action adventure. And you can get all of that in urban fantasy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not as familiar with it. I'm, I'm dabbling in, in the genre with a draft, which is why I'm really curious about, you know, what, what the conventions are. It, it seems like um, fairly young female protagonist, um, first person POV, um, paranormal magic system, supernatural, um, urban setting, maybe uh, yeah. cities. So am I checking all the boxes there? Or something I'm leaving. I, out? I would say that I think you can get away with either the first person or third person. I particular, you know, I prefer third person. That's initially what I started writing with because I think sometimes it's better if we don't know everything that's going on in our main character's head because, you know, maybe they're not as likable if we do. And I, I think that might be the argument some people have against the first, 
first person um, point of view is that all that main character is so whiny. Well, yeah, but we're all whiny in our head. Right. True. Right. So if you want to be a realistic first person, you kind of end up being whiny and then nobody likes you. Or you end up being the Mary Sue and then people don't like you because you're Mary Sue. (laughs) So yeah, um, I guess it's a fine line to walk, right? Yeah. I've written both. Uh, I do generally appreciate the third person, but I did some co-writing things last year and it was all first person and it was quite a challenge. It was very different for me. And the comments I got back from the first editor were basically, wow, your main character is such a narcissist. And I was like, oh, because they're like me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a narcissist. So, I I mean, I was able to take the mostly constructive criticism constructively, but it was, it was a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I I would imagine so. And, And I never really thought about it that way before. You're right. If you're writing in first person POV, you have to be self-centered and egotistical. That's just the nature of the perspective. That's the first person, yeah. <laughs> and of course, you're going to have to you know, misattribute other people's motives and actions, and you're not going to have everything. So you get, like, is it a, relate, a unreliable narrator now? Or, you know, so it opens and closes a lot of doors. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. How do you decide then? I mean, with, with things like, uh, magic and and paranormal mm-hmm. supernatural elements. How do you decide whether uh, what genre you're you're in? I mean, is it horror? Is it dark fantasy? Is it urban fantasy? Do you not care? Like, how do you how do you figure? I out? just for myself, I kind of just write and see what happens. Yes. And I would say probably depending on which of my stories you read, you could say, "Yep, that's firmly urban fantasy," or "That's more paranormal," or "That's paranormal romance," or "That's dark fantasy." I mean, it's kind of all over but the one unifying thing is i do like my happy endings because again life is challenging so i would say that might be one of the main criticisms that i've seen when i look at the (laughs) reviews is that everything came too easy i'm like yeah that's kind of my point yeah (laughs) i kind of want them to win so if you think that's too easy that's fine i don't write the dramatic horrible ending because i want to walk away feeling like i can kick some butt so, I, you know, maybe one of my biggest inspirations is probably Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. You know, her life is horrible all the time. And yet, you know, she's going to win. I mean, she died like three or four times and kept coming back. Like, you just know <laughs> it's going to be okay in the end. Yeah. yeah. We can't say that about life. So. That's true. That's true. Uh, what are you normally doing at 4 a.m.? So I wake up early because my children are extremely loud (laughs) and uh, my baby is now five and he is so attached that if I get up at six, like he's right there. And of course he wants to talk about Minecraft or whatever, and I don't get anything done. So I find I can wake up early. I can have my coffee. I can let my brain wake up with the coffee. And I also find that's a really great time to write in the quiet. I don't do well later because I'm tired. So if I wake up and do my writing, my brain is fresh. And you also tend not to self-edit as much because the editor is still asleep. (laughs) Right. The creative part has had a good night's rest and maybe still has some dreams in there. Who knows? 
And that's where I get a lot of my ideas. So it's a good time for me. Yeah. Is it part of a general writing routine? Like, are you aiming for a word count? Are you aiming for days in the chair? Is it just sort of you get up and you do what you need to do? I, I have a routine. I, I'm one of those people that if my routine gets interrupted, I'm just like a basket case all day. And, and for, for me, a lot of that is uh, the ADD brain. It's like, I need to keep my routine or I'm everywhere. And my husband has definitely noticed the days where I did not start my day with my little routine because I, I just, I can't focus. So for me, it's, it's just, it sets the tone for the rest of the day. If I have that time to sit and have my coffee and write in my journal and do my edits, then the rest of the day is just smooth. Yeah. If I wake up late with a five-year-old screaming in my ear, <laughs> the day is just downhill from there. So you do edits at that time. Do you do first drafting then as well, or is that a separate session? So when I first started writing, I would say yes. Uh, what has happened more over the last couple of years, because I've discovered that my ideas are faster than my fingers when it comes to typing, I started doing the edits in the morning, and then I'll dictate on the way to my job. And I can get two or 3,000 words done in the car in, in my 20-minute commute. And then I always have fresh supply of editing. Like right now I have, oh, probably six full first draft novels to edit. Wow. So, I mean, with things being kind of busy right now for me, I haven't been doing the dictation. But that's okay because I'm actually getting a chance to catch up. But yeah, I have a lot of books that need to get edited. Yeah. So with a family and a full-time job and, uh, and, and the writing, like, how are you going, getting to conferences and, and using social media and promoting your books? Like, how's that all uh, fit in? So I'm not as good at that because unfortunately, or fortunately, my writing is it is for me. I mean, I want people to like it and I hope I'm writing things that, that will take off. I mean, I, I think we're all kind of hoping for that, but it is more my creative outlet. I don't depend on the earnings. So I do a little bit of Amazon ads, which I have been the sort of set it and forget it person. So I, I know I could be doing more there. I used to, when my books first started to come out, I did a lot of the Facebook um, takeovers and things like that. And I just found that the time wasn't worth um, the return. They're, they're a great way to meet other authors. But now that I've sort of met more people, I don't, really feel I get the benefit out of that. And um, yeah, I would say newsletters. I send a, one of my newsletters out every two weeks to my mailing list and just kind of keep people up to date. And, and then conferences actually give me another sort of chance to catch up and work on writing because a plane is one place where people cannot contact me. <laughs> so I'm at that stage in my life where four hours without internet where no one can call me is a beautiful thing. It's a gift. 
It's such a gift, like no kids, <laughs> no work calls, nobody needs me, nobody could get me. So all I have is whatever I'm working on and I get some amazing edits done. Yeah. Yeah. I know that you, uh, I like what you're saying about your email list and, and how communicative you are. Uh, what's something you've learned from interacting with your readers that you've been able to use either in your craft or your business or, or just in general? I think people just really want to be seen. And I, I really hope that they get that. I, I mean, I have my Facebook group as well. And I'm myself. And I hope that's why people keep coming back. I, I find if you're trying to be somebody else, unless you're really organized, you just cannot keep that up. I am not really organized. That's not how my brain works. And I genuinely appreciate every interaction that I get. I, I mean, the fact that somebody wants to spend their time with something that I created is such a gift. Yeah. So I hope that I can show them that I appreciate that. And that's what I try to do in my emails and in my group. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, I, I kind of have a really big open-ended question that I like to kind of close the conversation with. Sure. So you, you can feel free to answer this however you want. Okay. No right or wrong. Uh, but where do you think the publishing industry is headed in say the next five to 10 years? Oh, that is a challenge. Well, I definitely, I mean, just, just looking at what's happened in the last five to 10 years, I would say that uh, barring, complete internet collapse, of course, in which case I'll just sit here and write for myself. Uh, I would say that we're probably going to see much more in the way of audiobook and eBooks. Uh, I think a lot of the brick and mortar stores are probably going to go under in the next little while, unless they're sort of the big name ones. I would also say subscription services are going to most likely be more the way things are going. Although hopefully it will be sort of the more open-ended subscription services like Kobo versus um, the KDP Select yes. for the simple reason that Kobo, yes, they can subscribe, but it doesn't limit the author or publisher in what medium. So I'm hoping it will sort of democratize the uh, process, but still maintain decent quality. Because I know that's always been sort of the argument against this democratization as well, then you get crappy books out there. But I mean, there's a lot of good books that haven't been discovered. But there's not a lot of really bad books that end up becoming anything big. All right, man. Are you a lucid dreamer by any chance? You know, I, I have been lately, and, it, and I think it has to do with, um, like, when we took the, put the heat on in the house for some reason, I think I, I tend to remember my dreams more. So I, I don't know why, um, like, air, air conditioning versus heating. But um, I, I, I wake up, you know, five or six times a night. I've never been a very good sleeper. Like, I typically need, like, maybe four hours worth of sleep. Um, my wife, on the other hand, needs, like, eight or nine. So I spend, you know, a good four or five hours just kind of laying there in my own head. Um 
I, I, I do write down or I try to document my dreams when I, I think the information is useful because every time, you know, anytime you have a dream that, you know, could be used in a book, I think authors should do that. Um, but a lot of times it's just my brain just rehashing stuff, you know, that that's happened either recently or, or far in the past, you know, that, that kind of thing. And it, it's almost like useless clutter. Like if I could change the channel, I think I would. What about you? Yeah. I've tried. I mean, I, I, you know, as I mentioned when I was talking to HM, like I, I tried because supposedly there are techniques you can do that will increase the likelihood that you can become a lucid dreamer. And I think the the scientific definition of a lucid dreamer is someone who can realize they're in the dream and affect what's happening in the dream. And that just sounds so cool to me, but I couldn't <laughs> get it to work. <laughs> it, it sounds like a Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To recognize your dreaming and then sort of dictate what's happening. And I was like, I want some of that, but I, I don't know. I couldn't get it to work. I, I know that I can change channels. My wife and I have talked about this and, and she does it too. So like if one of us is having a bad dream, we can kind of roll over and, and you know, flip the channel to, to something else. Um, but beyond that, I've, I've never really tried. I've come back to a dream. So I've, I've sort of been in a dream, woken up, uh, became fully awake and then went back to sleep and said, okay, kind of want to go back into that and like rejoin the dream. But that's as close as I get. Huh? Um, all right. Well, more power to her. It's, yeah. It's cool. <laughs> she's able to do that. I mean, if, yeah. I, if I could, if I could dream out my stories for the, you know, and then just sit down in the morning and write, I mean, that, that would be awesome. I got to figure out how to make that work. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I wanted that, to ask you, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was, she brought up a point or something that just got me thinking, like, why are people willing to accept things like supernatural and monsters in, in books and film, but, but not necessarily in, in real life? Mm. You know, she was kind of touched on it a little bit and, and, you know, it, it makes me wonder, you know, like I've, I've got zero problem picking up a book about vampires, about monsters and sort of accepting everything in that text as, you know, real, as far as that story goes. Um, but you know, if somebody points to like the house across the street and says, Hey, there's a ghost there, it's haunted. Um, you know, I just kind of shrug and, and walk by. So I don't, it just, it got me a little bit curious. I wonder if it's a defense mechanism and that if, if we, recognize that it's occurring in a piece of art or a piece of fiction, then it's not a threat to us. But if we, if we let that bleed over into the real world, then, then it, it's something we have to face. Maybe. I mean, that could be why, you know, movies like Blair Witch and things resonated as well as they did. It was, it kind of crossed that line. Yeah. Blair Witch is such a great example. I, I, I was so shaken by that movie and my wife was like, this is stupid. Like the whole time we're watching it together, he's like, this is dumb. I, this isn't scary at all. And I'm like, and I was shaking. Uh, so I, I wonder how that works, you know, like why it impacted me that way and not her. I, I really think it's the cameras, you know, like, cause there, there was a Blair Witch too. I don't know if you saw that one, but I did. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. I mean, it, but <laughs> it wasn't shot with camcorders. It was shot, you know, the traditional Hollywood way and it didn't work at all. I mean, the story was horrible, but I, you know, the, the story on the first one really isn't that great. You know, it's, it's no different than a, you know, ghost story we told each other when we were kids. But yeah, you know, I think the fact that it just came across as, you know, your buddy just sort of picked up a video camera and Holy crap, this just happened on film. Um, you know, like in a real life sort of way, I think that's what made made that work. Um, makes you wonder if you can, you know, bring that into a book. Um, yeah, know, we, we did a little bit with, with Dracul because, you know, Bram Stoker, when he wrote Dracula, he originally tried to sell it as a true story. Uh, and the publisher pushed back on that, uh, mainly because in, you know, in that time, they were worried that people would really believe that it was a true story, uh, that vamp yeah. vampires were real. Um, you know, and this is, you know, early Victorian England, you know, the seances were a regular thing. I mean, there was no television. So when you went to a party, there was usually a medium there and that kind of thing. And, and everybody believed that. So if you were to come out with a story like 
that back then. I could see people buying into it. Um, not, not quite so much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Another part of that conversation I wanted to ask you about was HM talked about writing in urban fantasy, but also having these other genre elements um, that, that are, that are part of it. Uh, and I know you, you are someone who, who tries to avoid very hard genre tags. Like you call yourself a, a suspense writer, right? As opposed to say a thriller writer or a horror writer. Um, how does that play into uh, where we are in 2021 in the publishing industry? Is it better to be more of a generalist or is it more advantageous to get very specific on a genre? No, it, it's definitely easier to just kind of fall into a box that everybody can just tick off. Um, and, and also to, you know, for lack of a better way to phrase it, write the same book over and over again. Um, because re at, at this point, readers, I think they expect that they pick up a book by a certain author and, and they want it to sort of reflect the last book they just read by that same author, um, more so now than, than ever in the past. And, and I think it's because the publishing industry has created these categories. Like when, when I came up, um, I, as far as I know, there wasn't a young adult you know, it, it wasn't really a category. You know? Yeah, it's relatively new, I think. Yeah, and you know, like those kind of things didn't exist. Even a lot of these genres didn't really exist. It was more or less just fiction and nonfiction, and you know, and that broke up into you know horror and sci-fi. Like those kind of things started to emerge, um, and now we've got all these subcategories. But I, I, I don't know if it has to do with volume or just you know, just the industry itself is finding it easier to market these things. But you know, they're they're creating these boxes and they want you to fit in them. Um, I know personally, I, I run into this, you know, with every book that I put out, um, you know, like my thrillers sell very, very well, you know, worldwide. Um, when I write something that's not a thriller, like she has a broken thing where her heart should be, which, you know, tends to lead more, you know, suspense horror. Um, it's, it's a push to get those same publishers on board with it. Um, you know, most of them will, will still pick it up because they know they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll sell. Um, but it, it doesn't fit that mold that they're a hundred percent confident in. You know, like um, Caller's Game, my new one coming out is a full-on thriller. You know, it's, it's being uh, tagged as uh, Die Hard meets Talk Radio. You know, it's a very easy sell for them, and, and it's going to, you know, appeal 100% to the people that like my other thriller books. So they're, they're you know, jumping on that without any problem. Um, but, you know, I, I, I like writing both, so I'm going to keep doing it. And what I'm personally doing is what uh, Dean Kunza told me to do a long time ago. I'm just I'm bouncing back and forth, you know, between the two. You know, I'm writing a thriller, I'm writing a suspense horror novel, then I'm writing another thriller, and I'm just going to keep going back and forth. And whoever wants to follow can follow. Well, and it, it seems, too, like you've, um, you've carved out your identity uh, in a way that allows you to do that. You know, you're, you're a hybrid author. You have, you have traditionally published books and you self-published books. And, and so if it's a project you know isn't going to be attractive to the big four publishers, then you, you can do it on your own. Um, and, and you have enough of a platform and enough of a following that people are going to read your stuff because it's you. And I think that's, that's sort of the aspiration. Like, I think that's where we all want to be, where we don't necessarily have to write that same story over and over again. Because I know for me personally, I can't do that. I just can't keep writing like the same story with different characters or a different setting. Like it's just not exciting to me. Yeah, it's well as as an author, it's a tough sell. You know, like I'm ha I have these conversations with my agent all the time, and with my film agent, and with you know the publishers themselves, with the editors. You know, they they want to buy every single book that I put out, but they want me to write one. You know, they want me to stick to that same formula every single time. And I, at this point, they know that I'm gonna I'm not gonna do that. And they also know that if they turn down the book, whether it's in you know the U.S. or a foreign territory, I'll put it out myself. So the book is still gonna get out there to market. You know, now they're no longer gonna make a profit on it. Um, you know, I'm sure that's part of the conversation 
conversations on on their end, and I'm, I'm sure they're not happy about it. Um, but you know, I, I I'm going to keep doing what's right for me. You know, in in the end, I mean, I've got to look at myself and my business. I mean, it's you know, I, I'm the only person that's really going to look out for for that. Um, everybody else is looking out for their their own self interest. And you know, if if this works and I can shape my career this way, so be it. You know, if it all falls apart, you know, then at least it's on me. That's right. Yeah, you you had the control over it either way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, that was a great conversation with HM Good. I'm glad she could come on and share her experience, especially around that, that whole family life situation and kids banging on the door. I think that's something a lot of people can relate to. So uh, that, was, that was great. Wish her the best of luck, and we'll have to keep tabs on her. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I think we have a friend of yours uh, coming up next week, right? I'm just, yeah, it's Lisa Gardner. Um, I'm just now getting to really know her. And it, it's kind of funny because we cross paths in a lot of um, weird ways. You know, when my wife and I, when we decided to move up here to New Hampshire, uh, we weren't, we knew we wanted to live in New Hampshire, but we weren't quite sure where in the state we wanted to go. Um, and New Hampshire is, is a very odd state because you've got coastal New Hampshire where we are now. And if you go, you know, an hour, you, you're in the mountains. Um, and we were really on the fence about that. Did we want water or did we want to live in the mountains? Um, so we drove out to uh, Conway, um, which is about an hour and a half, two hours from where we are now. And, and Lisa happens to live out in, in that area. So we had the same real estate agent. Um, and it, it's a gorgeous place to be. Um, you know, great if you're into skiing and, and that kind of thing. And just the, the scenery of just being in the mountains. I mean, it's just, it's all around you. It's beautiful. Uh, but the real estate agent brought up something that, you know, was a red flag for me. And, and she said that she knows Lisa really well. I guess their kids went to school together. Um, and she said that Lisa has to take a private plane in order to get to the airport to take a plane to go somewhere. You know, it's, it's like that far out. Like she could drive to the airport, but, you know, the major airports are about two hours from there. Um, so that that was kind of, you know, a deal breaker for me. I didn't want to have to do that. And the idea of driving through the snow to get to the airport for two hours wasn't really fun either. So we kind of passed on that. Um, but Lisa, she's on the board with ITW. So I've, I've gotten to know her a little bit through that. And, and she's doing a great job, you know, working with ITW and, and helping to shape the organization. And I'm, I'm really curious to see where, where this whole thing goes. Um, but it, it's nice to see people like that on board. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to her. Uh, I, I think any anytime you know we can get someone on who's uh, really sort of doing their their thing and being successful at it, there's a lot to learn. So that's going to be a fun conversation. Yeah, and she's a number one New York Times bestseller. She's been around for a while, so she's she's weathered the storm for for a number of years. So that's going to be interesting. Cool. All right. So that'll be coming up next week. So to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.